During the time when God sent judges to help Israel, there was a woman named Hannah. Hannah really wanted to have children, but was unable to. One day, she was so sad about this that she burst out crying and praying to God to give her a son. One of the priests of Israel named Eli was nearby and heard her and assumed she was drunk. How long are you going to stay drunk, he said to her. Put down your wine. Hannah explained that she was not drunk, but weeping and praying for God to give her a son. When he heard this, he prayed that she would indeed have a son. Soon after, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel. When he was a young boy, she brought him back to Eli, the priest, and the two of them prayed that God would use Samuel. One night, when Samuel was a little older, God spoke to him in his room, telling him about things that would happen in Israel in the future, called prophecies. This was the beginning of a special relationship between God and Samuel. God would use Samuel to speak to the Israelites over and over as a prophet. But the Israelites weren't satisfied with the prophet. They wanted a king, a military ruler, like the other nations around them had. Despite Samuel's warning against it, they demanded God give them a king. Eventually, God told Samuel who to make king. A man named Saul, who was easily a foot taller than any other man, someone the Israelites would trust to lead them. Samuel brought Saul in front of all of Israel. When the Israelites saw him, they shouted, Long live the king! Hearing that Israel had a new king, the Philistines gathered a huge army so large that some of the Israelites ran away in fear. But Samuel gave instructions to Saul that would lead to their victory. He told Saul to wait in a region called Gilgal until he could meet him there. Then they would give a sacrifice to God before the battle with the Philistines. But Saul grew impatient, and before Samuel got there, he offered the sacrifice himself. Saul's actions had terrible consequences. He continued to choose to go against what God commanded, and instead build up his own wealth and power, leading to the end of his rule in Israel. It was time for another king. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. That is the final verse of the book of Judges, and it sums up all the violence and sin and idolatry and inconsistency that are detailed for us in that historical book, the book of Judges. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone talked, everyone acted, everyone did anything that they felt like doing. If it felt good to them, they did it. And that, my friends, is always a recipe for disaster, personally, relationally, and nationally. And understand that from that verse to the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, not much has changed. Uh, there still is no king. Everyone is still doing what is right in their own eyes, and things are still bad. Israel was living under the oppression of enemy nations, specifically the, the Philistines and, and the Ammonites. 
And there didn't seem to be any end in sight for all their wars and struggles with other nations. And from the verse we just read, it sure seems like, I mean, the Bible seems to be suggesting that the answer is a king. I mean, maybe that's what the people need. Maybe they just needed a king. Uh, Maple Grove, welcome to chapter 10 of the story, uh, Standing Tall and Falling Hard, a, a conversation that I'm calling Choosing Our King. And if you're just joining us, we're on a, a 31-week journey where we're looking at the Bible, looking at God's Word, looking at God's story from a, a 30,000-foot view, from Genesis to Revelation, from January to September. And we're using this book right here, the story, as our guide. And now, if you read chapter 10 this past weekend, by now you know the drill. Uh, raise your hand if you read chapter 10 this week, all right? Okay, uh, raise it again if you plan on reading chapter 11 this week. All right, good job. That's awesome. Stick with it. It's going to make a difference. And, uh, and by the way, you have two weeks to read chapter 11, right? Because next week is Easter. We're going we're gonna to jump out of the story for Easter Sunday. Um, you know, the, the message, I don't know what it is, but God gave me the title and concept. It's going to just be, I'm calling it what if. Yeah, next week, just what if, and we'll develop that this week. And I hope you're excited about next week, uh, about celebrating the fact that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. And when we come back on April the 7th, we're going to jump back into the story and talk about a king named David. Again, again if you read chapter 10 this week, you saw how, how this new chapter of God's saga to build a nation actually begins with a happy ending. As the curtain uh, draws and goes up in chapter 10 of the story, we see God opening up the womb of a woman named Hannah and, and providing her with the child that she had hoped for and longed for for so long. And she appropriately names him Samuel, which means heard of God. You see, Hannah knew that when she cried out to God, that God heard her and, and she knew that God had given her this new life, that God had given her this, this baby boy. And Hannah's experience and the joy that comes in our lower story, when God gives us our heart's desire. And man, aren't those awesome and sweet times? And once Samuel was weaned, Hannah brought him back to Shiloh, back to where the tabernacle was, back to Eli the priest. And she said, I asked the Lord to give me this boy, and he's granted me my request. Now I'm giving him to the Lord, and he will belong to the Lord his whole life. Then right after giving her son back to the Lord, Hannah Praise this incredible uh, prayer of praise. And uh, just a few verses uh, I just want to read here. You know, she says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord has made me strong. Now I have an answer for my enemies. I rejoice because you rescued me. No one is holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. And then she begins to talk about how our God does things, how our God likes to uh, take the weak things of this world to confound the wise. And she says, he lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage heap. And so Samuel, he grows up with Eli and Eli's two sons, and he's brought up in the ways of the Lord, and he becomes Israel's last judge and their first priest and prophet combined. And eventually, he's given the reins of leadership, and actually, he gets the reins of leadership at a pretty difficult time. Um, Israel has just been crushed in two major, two major battles with the Philistines, a, a battle where two of Eli's sons, 
die, and the ark of God is actually captured. Eli, who's about 96 years old, when he hears the news that the ark of God was captured, he falls out of his chair, breaks his neck, and he dies. And, and Samuel's called out of the bullpen. He, he's given the ball of leadership, and, and it's the bottom of the ninth inning. There's two outs. There's nobody on base, and they're down by 10 runs. I mean, it's a difficult time. Now, the ark of God... Um, is eventually brought back to God's people because God's enemies find out it's not a really wise thing to capture God. I mean, I just love in the story where they, you know, where they take the Ark of the Covenant and they, they put it in, in the pagan temple of the pagan god uh, Dagon and, and they, they put the Ark right next to it. They come in the next morning and the pagan god has fallen down at the foot of the Ark. And they go, well, how'd that happen? And they put the sucker back up, and before long, Dagon's head pops off, his arms pop off. He's just a torso hanging there, and they're freaking out. We got to get rid of this thing. Got to get rid of it. But it was another 20 years where the ark actually made its way back to Shiloh. And after those 20 years, Samuel, he, he brings the ark back, and, and he calls all the people to repentance at a place called Mizpah. And here's what we read in 1 Samuel chapter 7. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bells and asterisks and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, assemble all Israel at Mizpah and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. Wow, that is a, a powerful picture. God, God's people pouring themselves out in repentance before God. And However, uh, the Philistines, they hear this and they hear what's going on and, and they, they, they prepare to attack. God's people are afraid. They, they ask Samuel, will you pray to God for us that, that God will deliver us? And, and God does. And they have a massive victory. Um, it, I mean, it's so decisive that throughout the lifetime of Samuel, they never had another problem with the Philistines, which I think is pretty cool that, you know, Samuel did more on his knees for God's people than Samson was able to accomplish with all of his physical strength. And it was there that, that God's people raised their Ebenezer. You know, for years I sang that hymn, Here I Raise My Ebenezer. I knew one Ebenezer, and his last name was Scrooge, right? <laughs> and I go like, what in the world does Scrooge have to do? You know, and what Ebenezer, it means a stone of help. And, and God's people, they took this big stone and they, and they set it up to say, you know, the Lord has helped us thus far. And that's the end of chapter 7. And there's 40 years in between chapter 7 and beginning of chapter 8. God chooses not to tell us what went on. His choice. It's his book, right? And, and, uh, and then in chapter 8, we read this. When Samuel grew old, he's been God's leader of God's people for 60 years. He's getting up there. He appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. Uh, they turned aside from dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. 
Now, now I kind of picture the scene as a massive protest. You know, hundreds, perhaps thousands of people marching, carrying signs, screaming, shouting in frustration, demanding that things change and change now. And it seems like everybody believes that the problem is the same. They all think that having a king will take care of all of their problems. All their problems will go away. Yeah, all the, all the latest tracking polls, all the focus groups clearly indicate that the majority of God's people were convinced that if they had a king, everything would be okay. Everybody knew this except one, the creator of the universe, God. Apparently he hadn't um, checked in with the focus groups or read the polls. Now, Now, their sin was not in asking for a king. Their sin was why they asked. They asked so we can be like everybody else. Understand, a king was part of God's plan. Matter of fact, when when God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, actually he's 99 years old and God is reaffirming the covenant with him, God actually said to Abraham, I will make a nation of you and kings will come from you. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. It bummed him out, it discouraged him. He took it personally. Have you ever done that? Have you ever tried to share your faith, do something for the Lord, and it didn't turn out the way you wanted it to, and you took it personally? And so, what did he do? He prayed to the Lord. That's probably a good thing to do, right? Rather than taking it personally, you know, pray to God. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It's not you that they've rejected, uh, but they've rejected me as their king. As they've done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. God tells Samuel, Samuel, it's not you. It's not you, man. It's not you. It's me. They're rejecting me. I, I, I was their king. And, it, and evidently, apparently, I wasn't good enough. I, I didn't measure up to them. Wow. Can you, can you feel the pain in God's voice? The pain of being rejected? Anybody like being rejected? Is it, you know, anybody? No, it's not fun, is it? You know, we had a mild rejection recently. You know, we're trying to move from downtown up the hill, we, as we call it. You know, we saw a house in Forest Lakes, put our application in. Other people did. And I thought, obviously, we're going to get this, right? And Called the dude up. Hey, Ray, what's up? He goes, oh, nah, well, they chose somebody else. I go, what? I'm re- you rejected me? How could you not choose me? Yeah, we were weighed in and found rejection's never fun. There was a guy who wrote a book. A guy, his name is Paul Cope, and he wrote a book called Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the God of the Old Testament. And uh, here's something he said. I read it this week. He said, uh, We should be deeply amazed that the creator of the universe would so deeply connect himself to human beings that he would open himself up to sorrow and anguish in the face of human rejection and betrayal. I mean, the the God, like the powerful creator of the universe, that, that, that he wants to connect with me so bad in such a deep way that now I have 
the ability and I am able to actually cause God's sorrow. Uh, that, that I can, by what I do when I reject God, that I'm actually breaking God's heart. And the Lord says, now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Have you ever heard the saying that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence? And there's a reason for that. They have a lawn service, all right? (laughs) And when the Israelites, as they looked across the fence into the yards of the surrounding nations, they thought to themselves, wouldn't it be great and wonderful to have a king? I mean, like the guys over there across the fence have. I mean, we're really missing out not having a king. Uh, but God's people didn't understand that when you look over your fence into the next yard, your, your vision is not clear. And, and therefore, you don't see things as they really are. I, I understand, um, we don't see the weeds and the mole cr- crickets until we get a closer look. Sure, having a king seemed like a great idea from the distance, But God says, you know what, when you actually have one, it's not going to be everything that you think it is. And Samuel warns the people, you know what, when you get a king, he's going to take your kids, he's going to take your sons. Somebody's going to have to serve in the army, somebody's going to have to plow his fields, he's going to take your daughters. And he's going to take the best of of your land, the best of your livestock, he's going to give it to his friends. And and, and then he's going to, you know, hold a meeting and they're going to raise your taxes up a whole lot. He's going to tax you and tax you and tax you. And then Samuel closes the warnings with these words from the Lord. When that day, when that day comes, you will cry out for, from, for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refuse to listen to Samuel. No, they said, oh, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. In other words, Samuel, don't, don't confuse us with the facts. <laughs> Uh, don't put dark clouds into our pie-in-the-sky dreams. Oh, we want a king. We want change. Uh, we don't want to hear. We don't want to think about the truth, the cost, or the consequences. It, it's funny how we can be like that sometimes. And the Lord told Samuel, listen to them and, and give them a king. You know, sometimes our heavenly father does what an earthly father does. He allows immature children to get what they want. Yeah, I can think of an example of this. I remember years ago when my older kids were younger and they'd have people spend the night and they're like really loud. And I'm like, hey, you know, we've got to get up early. You need to settle down. And they go, oh, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. Okay, you'll be fine. Okay, you're not, you're not going to be tired, right? When, when, when Reveille goes down at 7 o'clock, you're going to be real good and ready to go. Yep, yep, yep. I set my alarm at 7 and I, I grab a bunch of pans from the kitchen. <laughs> I go over to the stereo, get it loud as I could. And I go... And I would go for like for five minutes, banging, banging. Hey, you tired? You tired? You tired? They put the covers on it. I pull it up. Hey, hey, you feeling wide awake? Are you glad you stayed up? You good? Well, that's what God minus the pots and pans and, uh, and loud music is allowing the nation of Israel to experience. You see, sometimes God says yes to things even when he knows they're bad for us in order to teach us a lesson. Okay, so you, you want to do life without me? You really want to ignore my will and my way? Have at it. Have at it. Israel chose a king over God, but understand that choice isn't quite that straightforward. You see, at the time the choice made sense to them, it was obvious. I mean, every other nation had a powerful king. 
Uh, why can't they have one? But the reason it, it seemed like a good option was because they were too nearsighted to see the big picture of what God was doing. Understand, their asking for a king was marked or fueled by several other nearsighted choices that they have already made. And the first was choosing conformity over purpose. And I'm going to take a sip of water. And we're going to pray real quick. Palms open. Because I think it's big deal what God wants to talk to us about. And it could be a big moment in our lives, individually and collectively. God, we love you. And God, I pray right now as we continue talking about your word and some of the mistakes your people made years ago that we keep on making. God, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that will respond in the right way. God, help me to say what you want me to say. And help us to really think about who we're choosing as our king. Amen. Uh, they said to him, you are old. Your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. A little later in a chapter after Samuel warns them, um, and it didn't work. It says, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. In other words, Samuel, we want to fit in. Samuel, we want to be like all the other nations. And again, they're, what they're choosing is conformity over purpose. They're choosing fitting in, blending in over the purposes of God. And, and, and you, know, you know what's crazy? It's crazy the stuff that we will do to fit in. It's crazy the stuff that we'll wear. It's crazy the stuff that we'll buy. It's crazy the things we'll do with our hair, right, just to fit in. Okay, here's some pictures of what people did to fit in years ago. Like, that's the 70s, right? I mean, you know, I mean, they, they're cool. I mean, that's probably a cover of a magazine right there, right? I mean, bell bottoms. I mean, these guys, they're happening right there. Ladies, there's some stuff some ladies wear. Okay, no one's wearing that today. And then some hairstyles. There you got, got the mullet, right? I mean, everybody's have a mullet. Yeah, it's like, got to have one of them. Or you had hair, okay? <laughs> okay, the stuff we do just to fit in, just to blend in. That's a good picture. Hey, you remember back in chapter two of the story, God builds a nation? Um, when God called Abram, he said, Abram, you're going to be a father of a, of a of great nation. You're going to possess a great land. And he said this, you'll be a blessing to all. It's a blessing that that picture removed, I'll tell you what. <laughs> I'm looking at it. It's like, wow. No, not, anyhow, you'll be a blessing to all nations. Everyone will be blessed through you. Do you remember that story? Well, here's what we got to remember. God didn't just build a nation. God made a nation with a purpose. Understand, this wasn't some haphazard, accidental whim. No, building a nation, choosing Israel, was all part of God's purpose. It was all to fulfill God's ultimate plan to bring people back to himself. And listen, uh, the, the, the more we read, the deeper we go into the story, into God's word, um, we're going to realize that, that God's story isn't just something he makes up as he goes along. I mean, there, there's no twists or turns that 
or un, that, that God didn't expect, that God didn't see coming. It's not like God says, whoa, I, I didn't see that. Oh, man, that really messes things up. I mean, what am I going to do now? How, how am I going to fix my story? I understand before the foundation of the world was laid, God had a plan and a purpose, and he was building this nation for a reason. And it was most definitely not to be like every other nation. In fact, it was the exact opposite. It was to be different. As we said several times in the last few weeks, being God's people was never about geography. Instead, it was always about becoming a people. And really, we could say our geography could be being in church, right? Being in a church building, you know? Instead, it was always about becoming a people who would reveal, reflect, and display God's person, power, and purposes throughout the world. That's what it was about. That's what the nation was about. And see, God's intent was to shape their lives, and God's intent is to shape our lives in such a way that they point the people of this world to the incredible sweetness of being in a relationship with him. Just like the Coke bottle we talked about weeks ago. They designed this bottle specifically so you would know what it is. You know, there is something sweet inside that bottle. And God wants people to look at my life and yours and say, wow, there's something different there. There must be something sweet inside there. And that sweetness comes from God. And now, now we need to get this. The desire for normalization, the desire to fit in, is usually a step away from God. Because we're never told to blend in. And we're told and commanded to stand out to be different. You see, God didn't call Israel to be just like every other nation. And the same goes for us. Uh, understand, throughout the New Testament, we see phrases like, the church should be set apart. In fact, the word church, ecclesia, literally means to be called out. The Bible talks about how you and I are strangers and aliens in a foreign land. How, 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 how we're to be holy because God is holy. How we're not of this world. I, I like how, how, how um, I like the Phillips translations of Romans 12.1. And don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Man, it tries hard, doesn't it? I mean, every day we wake up, right? Every day the world is trying to squeeze us into its mold. But let God remold your mind from within so that you may prove and practice that the plan of, of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of maturity. So Samuel and God listen to all the people are saying, and we need to fit in, we need to be like everybody else, we need to have a king, and God tells Samuel to, finally he just says, go ahead, Samuel, go ahead. Go ahead and do it. Anoint Saul as their first king. And now Saul is the perfect picture of what you would expect the king to look like, right? He's young, he's tall, he's strong, and he's handsome. And I look at it, I say, okay, yeah, I'm young, no. <laughs> I'm short, um, oh, okay. But listen, no king, no matter how perfect they may appear in the world's eyes, can match up to having God as your leader. When God's people in Samuel's day chose conformity over purpose, it revealed just how nearsighted they were to God's big picture and to God's big purpose of bringing people back to himself. And listen, the same thing applies to us. Understand, when we, we go to work, we go to school, we go to wherever, God, God doesn't want us to, to blend in. He, he doesn't want us 
to fit in. He, he doesn't want us to conform. He, he wants us to, to be different and, and not different in a weird way, right? You know, we're like, oh, wow, you're weird and I don't want nothing. You know, we're pretty good at doing that, right? We stick out in all the wrong ways. But God wants us to stick out in all the right ways so that people see him and are drawn to him. And now this choice of conformity over purpose wasn't the only nearsighted choice they make. They also make the uh, foolish choice of choosing power over trust. Power over trust. Listen again to what Samuel said, uh, what they said to Samuel. We want a king over us, then we'll be like all the other nations with the king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. You see what's taking place here? Israel's being motivated by fear. They, they see other armies starting to form around them. They see other kings and nations in the middle of massive military buildups. And they think, you know what? Uh, we'd be much better off if we had that kind of king, if we had a strong military leader, that kind of king to lead us in the battle. You see, Israel decides that uh, they need power. They, they need power that they can see. They, they, they need power that can, can, can intimidate other people. They need power that compares to every other nation. Here's what they forgot. They forgot that their greatest military conquests were when they were dramatically outnumbered. That They forgot who it was that actually won the battles. Uh, they forgot that their most amazing victories came not when they were full of power, but when they were full of trust. Uh, but instead of trusting God, they, they chose power. They chose to power up on their own and trust in themselves. Let's build our armies. Let's strengthen our fortresses. Let's increase our numbers. Let's draw up our battle plans. We're on our own in this. It's up to us. We got to figure out how to do this. But the psalmist says in Psalm 20 verse 7, some trust in chariots and horses and power. But we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. And Psalm 118, verses 89, it's literally the, they're literally the two middle verses of the entire Bible. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It, it, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6 says it, despite what we think, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord Almighty. Uh, listen, the temptation for Israel was to, was to choose a power that they could see rather than trusting a God that they could not see. That was their temptation. And even though Samuel warned them, Israel still makes the choice for military power in the form of a king. You know, we want a king over us. I thought God was over you. And then we'll be like the other nations with a king to lead us. I thought... God was leading you and to go out before us in battle. I thought God was going out before us in battle and to fight our battles. I understand no matter what God had done for Israel in the past, no matter how powerful and unfailing he had been to them, the current circumstances were so overwhelming to them that they became nearsighted to the fact that God could actually use the very circumstances they were in as part of his big plan and big purpose. And you know, sometimes I look at them and I think, wow, that's nuts. It's crazy. I mean, after all that stuff, after the 10 plagues, after the Red Sea parting, the Jordan River parting, after raining down bread from heaven to feed millions of people for 40 years, 
After the walls of Jericho, after Gideon's great battle, after what God just did a few years ago at Mizpah when they raised their Ebenezer, thus far the Lord has helped me. I mean, what more do they want? Before I get too condescending, before I point too many fingers at them, I have to ask myself this question, how do I respond to circumstances? How, how, how do I respond when I'm outgunned and, and, and outnumbered? How, how, how do I respond to difficult situations that are so much bigger than I am? And here's the truth. Too often, we let our circumstances blind us to the work of God in our lives. Unfortunately, circumstances, maybe even some of the ones we're in right now, can cause us to forget all that God has done for us in the past. I mean, we, we forget that. God is the one who saved us from a, a failed marriage. We forget that you know, God is the one who gave our lives purpose. We forget that, that God is the one who renewed our hope after that difficult situation we went through. We forget that God is the one who helped us in the midst of that unhealthy work relationship. We forget that God is the one who picked us up when we fell. We forget that, that God is the one who provided for us when we thought we had no hope at all, but he delivered again and again and again. You see, the real danger is that oftentimes in the midst of our circumstances, instead of trusting in a God that, that, that we can't see, we, we attempt to power up on our own. How, how do I fix this? How do I make this work? How, how, how do I make this right? How do, how do I overcome this? How do I power up and make this happen? It, it, it's up to me. I, 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 I'm on my own here. I, I, I got to make it work. I, I got to figure this out. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise. Just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how you prove yourself to me again and again and again and again. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Some trust in horses and chariots and, and, and what we can do and, and what we can muster up and what we can strategize. <laughs> but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And that's not like name tag name. It means we trust in the character. Uh, we trust in the person. We trust in who God is in this situation. Now before we move on to the next nearsighted choice God's people made, just a couple of verses at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 12. Sam was talking to people. Now here's the king you've chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and, and, and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and your king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, it will be good. But if you do not obey the Lord, if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. And, and listen, Samuel says that if they and the king follow God, it's going to be good. It's going to be all right, you know. But if they don't, God's going to be against us. You see, 
understand this, they still can stand on their feet. God is so gracious. They can still stand on their feet if both the king and the people obey God. But here's where we see the final foolish choice was the choice of uh, choosing options over obedience. Now, now Saul was a, a pretty good king at first, right? He, he, he obeyed God. He, he listened to Samuel. He fought the enemies of Israel with God on his side. But all that changed when, when Saul was too nearsighted to see the big picture what God is doing. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, God calls on Saul to wage war against the Amalekites. Now, I don't know if you remember, but God met, God's people met the Amalekites as they wandered in the wilderness. And these were like wicked, cowardly soldiers. What they would do is they would sneak behind God's people and they would pick on the weak and the defenseless and the women and the children and the weary. And as soon as the other soldiers turned to fight, they'd go run away. And God told Moses in Deuteronomy, he says, remember what they did. Never forget what they did. Never forget what they did, the injustice they did, picking on the weak like that, because someday in the future when you're in the land, I'm going to have my justice. And that time was in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15. And, and Saul, God tells Saul, defeat the army, destroy every person, make certain that you kill every sheep, every donkey, every camel, all the people of the city. Get rid of them all. You know, can't take anything. Why? Because this is not about spoils of war. This is about God's justice. And so Saul goes out with his army. They march out. They do battle. Uh, they annihilate the opposition. And, and there's a phrase, there's a, there's a two-word phrase in uh, chapter 15, verse 9, um, that really says a lot about Saul. It says, but Saul. And that changes, everything changed from there. You see, Saul, instead of destroying everything as God commanded him to do, he spares King Agag. I mean, what parent would name their kid Agag, all right? Seriously. You're not going to find a license tag at that at any gift shop, guaranteed, okay? Um, he spares the best sheep, the best cattle, everything that was valuable. And Samuel comes to confront him. He knows what's going on. And, and, and Saul walks up to him and says, hey, the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Yeah, right. Like, sure you did. I mean, he's like the five-year-old who says, hey, Mom, I didn't eat those cookies you told me not to while he has chocolate smeared all across his face. You see, Saul sees Samuel coming, and he begins to justify. He says, I did everything the Lord said. And Samuel goes, really? Then why am I hearing, meh, meh, moo, moo. All right, whatever, that's a terrible cow. <laughs> uh, okay, that's better. That's better. Okay. I'll give up my day job. <laughs> if you destroyed everything, if you destroyed all the livestock, then why does it sound like I'm walking in Dr. Doolittle's backyard? And. and Samuel immediately begins to justify his actions. And what does he do? do? He blames other people. Well, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. Immediately, let's throw them under the chariot, right? Uh, they spared the best of the sheep and cattle uh, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Listen, when confronted, Saul doesn't respond with humility and brokenness. Instead, he's defensive. He's full of pride. And that's a lesson for us to learn, Right? When someone criticizes us or questions some behavior that we have, 
You know, the first thing we should really do, right, is say, okay, is there any truth in this? Is there something I need to adjust in my lifestyle? You see, a humble person, when things go wrong, looks for a way to take some type of responsibility, but a proud person blames everybody else. Then you got to listen to the exchange between Samuel and Saul. Saul tries to finagle his way out of the situation. Um, um, Samuel says, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord. I did. Saul said, I, I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and, and brought back Agag their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, uh, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And, and then Samuel says something so powerful. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To, to obey is better than sacrifice. And the heat is better than the fat of rams. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying uh, uh, obedience is better than your token offerings. Uh, obedience is better than what you burn on the altar. Uh, obedience is better than our singing. Uh, obedience is better than worshiping. Obedience is better than tithing. You see, Saul was trying to figure out the best option. He, he wanted to do what seemed like the best option to him. And you got to understand this, even though what he did was not inherently a bad thing. I mean, to offer a sacrifice to God, that's not a bad thing unless God commands you to do something else. You see, what Saul did was almost obedience. I almost didn't eat all those cookies. But God didn't want sacrifice at that point. He wanted obedience. And understand, partial obedience obedience is what? Disobedience. It's disobedience. You see, Saul reasoned, you you know what? I I think this would be the best option. Uh, This way we we get some good out of it. Uh, We get some good livestock out of it. Maybe we can leverage King Ahag to, to, to get some leeway with our enemies. But Saul has his own agenda. It's very different than God's agenda. He did what he thought was best, but God wanted obedience. Have you ever heard of the concept of the, the love languages, the five love languages, that everybody has their love language? Great book. Every couple should read it or know about it. It's a way that you do something for a person, and that's how you say, I love you to them. And, and one way is the you know, words of affirmation. Some people, you, you encourage them, hey, that's how you tell me you love me. Uh, quality time is the second one. Gifts, giving gifts to other people, that's how you say you love me. Acts of service. And the fifth is physical touch. You know what God's love language is? Obedience. See, nothing tells God we love him better than we obey him. Uh, Jesus said in John 14, 15, the way of the cross, if you love me, you'll what? You'll, you'll obey me. You'll obey me. And it's not in some legalistic way as if we're earning God's love. It's just that every time I obey God, I put a smile on his face. We get that, don't we, parents? And when our kids obey us, when, when they do what we ask them to do, it, doesn't it make us happy? And every time that, that I obey God and do what he wants me to do, it just puts a smile on his face. Question, do you ever give God options? Do you ever... Keep your options open like, like, like Saul did and offer God partial obedience. 
I mean, God tells you something he wants you to do. And God says, I, I want you to go on a short-term mission trip to serve other people. But then you start thinking, you know what, I, I don't know if I want to give up my vacation time to do that. I'm going to donate some money so somebody else can go. And that's not a bad thing, right? Helping other people go. Unless God has told you specifically that he wants you to do that. Or maybe God puts your heart, you know, I, I want you to serve somewhere ministry to church. You think, yeah, I should do that. Then you start thinking, every week? That's a big need. But you know what? I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray every day that God puts the right people in the right spot so he gets glory in his church. That's a really good thing to do, to pray unless God has told you to do something else. You got, God, God, I know that you told me to tithe, but I have a different idea. God, I know you told me to be sexually pure, to control my tongue, to, to break off that unhealthy relationship, to ask for forgiveness from that person. God, I know that you told me and you fill in the blank, right? Something God's put in your heart. But, but God, I think I'm going to, do it this way. And when I do that, can I tell you what I think God hears me saying to him? God, I don't, I don't want you to be my king. I, I don't want you as my king, God. I, I, I want someone else to be my king. I, I want something else to be my king. God, I just want another option. Israel's cry for a, a new king was, was marked by a series of nearsighted choices. They, they, they couldn't see that by, by choosing a human king, they were rejecting God. They, they couldn't see that, by, that their desire for conformity derailed the purposes of God. They couldn't see that by trying to power up on their own and, and, and flesh it out, they were actually not trusting in God. And they couldn't see that by only giving God partial obedience, they were actually disobeying God. And... and and I guess we're faced with the same question today. Do we want God to be our king? Or do we want someone else or something else to be our king? And can I tell you something today? God wants to be your king. In fact, God wants to be your king so bad that he left heaven and put on flesh and came to this earth just to prove it. And when Jesus got in the flesh, when he was beaten by the Roman guards and he stood silently and endured it, he chose purpose over conformity. And when he was mocked while hanging on the cross, while he was suffocating to death on the cross, he chose to trust in God rather than to power up on his own. And when he prayed, not my will, but your will be done, he chose obedience over options. And Jesus Christ walked out of that grave three days later, proclaiming once and for all time that he wants to be your king, and he's the only king that you will ever need. <laughs> Who do we want to be our king? You know, do we want other people to be our king? Are we going to live to please others? Then, man, we're going to be, it's all be about conforming, right? Fitting in, blending in. We're going to get wore out, won't we? Or, or is it to please ourselves? Then, then our life's all about control. You know, how can I power up? How can I make life work the way it's supposed to? 
Or, or, or we can put God as our king. And then it's all just about commitment and trusting in him. I want to close with some words from the great theologian, Dr. Seuss. Because really we have a choice today for a king, right? You have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own and you know what you know. And you're the one who will decide where to go. Dr. Seuss, from his book, All the Places You Will Go. Uh, Maple Grove, we have brains in our head. And we have feet in our shoes. And today we get to choose who's going to be our king. You know, who's going to be on the throne of our heart and our lives. And all I can think of, all oh, the places we will go. All oh, the places we will go when God is our king. Amen. You know, it's Palm Sunday. I didn't know that till this morning. <laughs> Seriously. I was in the booth. Renny goes, this Palm Sunday. I go, you're kidding me. No way. And I'm thinking, how cool is that? It couldn't have planned it, right? I've screwed it up trying to plan it. I had no idea. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus rode in the streets proclaiming, I'm the king. Yeah, I know I don't look like a king. I don't have a big army around me, but I, I'm the king. And, and, and people shouted and screamed. We're going to sing a song to wrap up today. And and it's an opportunity for you to grab. I'm going to grab it. You know, as we think about the amazing love that Christ would die for us and, and where we got to say, you know what, Jesus, I haven't done so well. I, I, a lot of times, you know, the king of my life is other people, other situations. I'm the own king of my life and I'm trying to control my life and it's just not working out. And I'm tired and, and I'm worried because no matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I power up, I just can't do it. And, and I'm just wore out trying to fit in and Worried about other people think about me. And the day, Jesus, I want to say, you know what? You're my king. Amen. You're my king. You're the only king that I'll ever need. And God wants to be your king. Father God, would you stand and we're going to pray and sing. God, we love you so much. <coughs> and Jesus, I, I pray that just right now, Lord, and God, that, that you would want to be my king. And that you would want to be so close to me that I actually can hurt you and bring you sorrow when I turn away from you. And that you would love me with this amazing love. And, and God, I just pray that right now each of us just declare for the first time, maybe for the 70 times, 70th time, that Jesus, you are our King. And you're the only king we'll ever need. You're not a king who takes, you're a king who gives. Amen.